Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 58. The profile of the planet Saturn and its famous rings are unmistakable. And this week, we're talking to someone who has spent much of his career studying them. Jeff Cousy is the interdisciplinary scientist for rings on the Cassini mission, which is about to meet a fiery end when the spacecraft dives into Saturn's atmosphere on September 15th. In addition to studying the composition, behavior, and origin of the rings, Jeff helped plan the hundreds of orbits that Cassini made around Saturn in order to capture the best, most interesting data. This included information on the planet, its rings and moons like Titan and Enceladus, and some important surprises for the search for life in the solar system. Now as a special treat leading up to Cassini's descent into Saturn, stay tuned, or whatever it is that you do for an audio podcast, because next week we're going to have another discussion about Cassini with Jeff, with last week's guest Chris McKay, and another scientist, Dale Cruikshank. But for now, here to give us a tour of Saturn through Cassini's eyes is Jeff Cousy. Thanks for coming on over, Jeff. We, well, we always like to start it in the same way. So first off, t to learn a little bit about yourself, tell us how did you join NASA and what brought you to Silicon Valley? So I came to NASA in uh, about 1974 as a okay. postdoc. I was working with a very famous scientist, Jim Pollock, who was in the Space Science Division there. And I had done just a little bit of postdoctoral work uh, before that, uh, studying uh, Saturn and the planet Mercury. I was a radio astronomer. So okay. using these big dishes, you know, these big yeah. like, radio dishes uh, hooked up together. So I've been studying these objects. And just by accident, down in West Virginia, we, we were studying Mercury, which is during the day, and Saturn was up at night, so we decided to look at it. Nobody had yeah. ever seen the rings before, Saturn's rings before, with the radio telescope. It's just like they just weren't there. Okay. It just looked round like Jupiter. And we looked at the planet, and we saw something a little funny, like uh, in one place. And then just after I got back and I was reducing this data, Jet Propulsion Lab bounced for the first time this big giant radar signal off yeah. the rings. So um, that was part of the puzzle that I was working on with Jim Pollock. Oh, so wow. 1974, that's when I got here and we started working on the rings. You've been obsessed with Saturn and the rings for, for quite a while. Well, who wouldn't want to be? Uh, was it like something ever since you were you were little, just obsessed with the stars no, and looking at that, or did you fall into not it? Not really, just kind of fell into it. I was an engineer in college. Really? Yeah. All right. Are you from originally from West Virginia? Or are you no, California? No, grew up in New York. Uh, went to Cornell. Um, went to grad school at Caltech. Uh, went back to Massachusetts for a postdoc, and uh, then came out here. And this is where I've been. Oh, excellent. So, did you join Ames as the postdoc? Yes. Doing that and yes, yes, they. Um, yeah, joined as a postdoc, uh, worked with Jim, and uh, did a few other things uh, while I was here. Worked a little bit on the SETI project was, when it was just getting started, and uh, then had a two-year postdoc at Berkeley, and then they hired me as an actual Ames person in 78. Yeah, and so what were you working on then? Was it still focusing on, like, planetary science? Oh, yeah, all planetary all? science. In fact, they had got me started a little bit on space mission work. Uh, mm -hmm. The division chief at the time, Dale Compton, uh, had uh, 
asked me to, to lead uh, a new mission study for a Titan entry probe, which really? was the first study that had ever been done. And I didn't know anything about Titan at all. But Ames had done all these probe uh, um, projects like the Galileo probe to Jupiter. Mm -hmm. It was Ames. And uh, the Pioneer Venus probes, four of them went to Venus. That was Ames. So Ames had all this probe expertise. So I thought, well, why shouldn't we send a probe in a Titan, big, big, you know, very fascinating moon around Saturn. And I said, well, I don't know anything about Titan. And I don't know anything <laughs> about atmospheres. And Dale Common said, don't worry, Jim Pollock will help you out. <laughs> He'll set you in the right direction. Yeah, right. So I, I worked on that. And it, as it turned out, we had um, the design that we came up with. We briefed headquarters on the design. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, this is great. We like this so much. We're going to give this to JPL for them to work on. <laughs> and so I thought, gee, that's great. And the guy, the engineer who I was working with, he was just aghast because all of a sudden, you know, Ames wasn't going to be doing this project. Now JPL was going to be doing it. Mm -hmm. In the end, uh, when NASA and the European Space Agency yeah. decided to work together on a Saturn orbiter with a probe to Titan, which is essentially Cassini, uh, the probe was given to ESA to do, mm -hmm. and ESA did a fine job, but they didn't know much about probes. So for several years, uh, a number of Ames people uh, were going over there to help them get up the curve on uh, entry probes and entry technology and so on. Yeah, it's all very relevant to us right now. And for the folks who are listening, this is breaking the fourth wall slightly. Uh, we're recording this right as uh, Cassini, uh, it just started its first, you know, of a series of orbits where it passed right in between like Saturn and the innermost ring. And as I understand, it's going to do it, I think, like 22 times before its final entry and burning up, you know, sometime in September, September. of uh, of this year. Right. So, you know, when this when this is released, it'll probably be a little bit after that. But that's the. Yeah, so the, that is funny. So uh, the, right now is mm -hmm. the culmination of this Cassini mission for which the planning started in around 1978 or 79. <laughs> right, so, so these things take a long time to come in, to fruition. Indeed but, it does. But here we are, and we have had a wonderful mission. Cassini was launched in uh, 1997. Mm -hmm. It was approved by Congress in 1990. Oh, and wow. then I joined the mission as a what they call the interdisciplinary scientist for rings, based on my rings background, at in 1990. And since uh, 1990, we had to build it, we had to launch it, we had to <laughs> send it past Venus, and then we had to send it past Earth. And there was a lot of controversy at that time about the plutonium on board the spacecraft, mm -hmm. and uh, was that going to be a hazard or whatever? And then we had seven years in space. We got to Saturn in 2004. Uh, there was a very, uh, very critical burn that we had to do mm -hmm. to actually uh, put on the brakes, if you like, and keep us from just flying right on by, like the Voyager spacecraft before had just flown by Jupiter, flown by Saturn, flown by Uranus, flown by Neptune, got a wonderful, oh, wow. a lot of wonderful data. Uh, but we wanted to go in orbit, so we had to do this burn. And we went in orbit, and now we've been going there. I think we, by the end of the mission, we'll be doing... I think 290 orbits around Saturn and all kinds of different geometries, looking at the planet, the rings, the moons, uh, sampling the magnetosphere uh, from all different directions. And so how many planets total did it end up visiting? Well, uh, Cassini uh, just yeah. uh, went by Venus twice and the Earth once. And that's all to gather speed right. to get the orbit in order right. to get launched further that's, out. That's right. 
Oh, cool. And then, um, so thinking back to when you're, when this whole concept even came up, and I'm sure your your people are pitching concepts to headquarters. You know, they, they probably say like, "Nope, got to go back, try it again, modify it, edit it." Um, what was what were you looking at as, as the original intent, the original mission for for the space probe? Well, the original mission for Cassini, the the the, the original mission was a yeah. with two probes. There was a probe into Saturn, okay, like the Galileo probe. Yeah. and a probe and a Titan. So Saturn is like Jupiter, a gas giant planet hundreds yeah. of times the mass of the Earth. Titan is like uh, the size of Mars, uh, but it has an atmosphere that's uh, sort of like the same density as the Earth's atmosphere, only maybe more so, okay. mostly nitrogen. At, so very di- very different environments. Titan also has a lot of organic chemistry going on that was thought to have some clues about how life may have formed on Earth. So that was part of the goal was to study Titan uh, we didn't know how thick the atmosphere was at the time when we f- did that first probe study, so we had different uh, options. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew uh, at the time uh, we were designing this uh, in the 80s, uh, Voyager had gone by Saturn already. So you knew there was something interesting there. So we knew <laughs> there was a lot of really cool stuff to do with the rings, yeah. uh, with this little moon uh, Enceladus, which is um, only a couple hundred kilometers. It's much smaller than our moon, but it, it had a, a funny relationship with um, this big broad ring around Saturn. So we knew there were a lot of really good reasons to go back to Saturn, and those were some of the goals. Yeah, I'm thinking back to you know even this year in April of 2017, NASA did a big uh, Water Worlds announcement, and, and it was a culmination of data from Cassini, but also from other land-based telescopes. And I remember one of the images that stuck out in my head is they show is an illustration, not really a photo, but um, an illustration of it of Cassini going through the plumes of Enceladus. Yeah, that's a very cool graphic. Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, Enceladus, one of the major discoveries of Cassini uh, that we actually didn't make for a couple of years almost, I think at mm-hmm. least a year uh, while we were there, was that Enceladus, it's no accident that it's in the middle of the E-ring. It's because it it does have this molten uh, south polar ocean. Yeah. Uh, and it's got these geysers and jets that are streaming away from the South Pole. And these geysers and jets uh, starts out with liquid water, but the, the water is salty. And it has organic material in it. And uh, it has a whole number of these little silica grains. And, and as the water comes out, it freezes and makes these little ice grains, which then go into orbit and spread out into being the E-ring. So now, you know, now we know, well, we our hunch at the time was... Everybody was a little reluctant to say it, but maybe mm-hmm. there's something like geysers or liquid water at Enceladus, and that's why we have this very peculiar E-ring centered on Enceladus. It's nothing like Saturn's main ring. So that was one of the reasons for going there, and in fact, that's uh, what we found. So now they're learning about the composition of the subsurface ocean on Enceladus by flying the spacecraft through these plumes, and we have instruments on board Cassini that can measure the composition of the dust. So like I said, organic carbon-rich molecules with rings, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, various uh, complicated organics and okay. some salt. 
And then you'd mentioned the E-ring. So for folks who may right. not be familiar, right. explain what you're referencing in terms of like the location on the ring, I'm guessing. Sure. Saturn's rings, uh, when you think of Saturn's rings, it's uh, the you're thinking of the main rings. Yeah. So these are the rings that are kind of close to Saturn, and they're very, very flat and thin uh, in a vertical direction. Well, from edge to edge, the main rings are about as uh, wide as almost from the Earth to the moon. Okay, that's oh, how wow. broad they are. But they're only like 10 meters thick. So it's like a piece of paper the size of Golden Gate Park. Very, very thin. Uh, And those main rings are just composed of innumerable uh, icy, mostly, particles of centimeters to several meters in size, kind of all orbiting Saturn-like little moons. Uh, bumping gently with each other, and uh, and uh, all that the bumping is a little bit like the molecules in a gas. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the the physics of the rings, it's it's all about pressure and viscosity and self gravity. <laughs> so it's like a fluid of particles. Yeah. And and they have certain boundaries between re- various regions of the rings that look a little different for one reason or another. And we call them the A ring, which is the most the, the outermost. Oh, okay, outermost. Outermost of of the main rings. Okay. At Saturn, and then there's uh, something called the Cassini division, which is not really empty. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's the B ring, which is the most massive ring. It's sort of the central ring. And then there's the C ring, which is the innermost ring. Uh, and those particles are darker and different in some compositional ways than the others. So those are the main rings. Right outside the main rings, there's a little funny curly Q stranded dusty ring called the F ring. Okay. Very narrow. And then if you go further out, there's something called the G ring, which is like a rubble belt. And it's got a little <laughs> moon in it. And it's maybe a couple hundred kilometers wide. And then if you go even further out to where Enceladus is, sort of four Saturn radii, the main rings are maybe two Saturn radii uh, in, in, you know, um, from the center of Saturn. Uh, the E-ring is about four. And this is very broad, very, very diffuse ring. It spreads out out to eight or nine Saturn mm-hmm. radii. And, and it's almost transparent. You can almost see right through it. And we know from the scattering properties of the particles that they're very different from the particles in the main rings, which are these centimeter to meter size things. In the E-ring, they're smoke particles, you know, one micron in size, like cigarette smoke. They're very, very small. And that was a puzzle. But now we know, well, that's because (laughs) they froze out of this vapor that's being ejected out of the the pole of Enceladus into these little tiny rings. Right. And then they just spread around uh, and form this diffuse ring. Wow. So so let's go back to a little bit of, uh, you know, your day to day on working on this kind of stuff. So how does that fit in? Like you, you come in, check your computer. You're like, what is it? What does it look like? You're somebody who's working on on something like this. How, how does that? How does that go? Well, the way the mission has been organized, we because there's so many things to look at Saturn uh, there, right? And there's mm-hmm. so many different disciplines. I'd imagine, yeah. Right, like I don't know anything like about the magnetosphere. So, so, right, so we have the teams, which is like built around the instruments. There's a camera team, there's an infrared team, there's an ultraviolet team, there's a dust uh, detector team, there are all these different teams, magnetometer team, and they have their scientists on their teams. Each team has people who specialize in different things, so they all have a rings person, maybe. Okay. So now, because I'm the interdisciplinary scientist, we have a group that I'm, I'm the chair of this group called the Rings Discipline Working Group, and there are discipline working groups for the satellites, the magnetosphere, and the planet. 
okay? So we get together and we kick around everybody's wish mm-hmm. list. And so by doing this, we've helped the project essentially design all these 200 orbits. You know, we had to make all that up. Yeah, exactly. You know, where do you want to go and for how long? Uh, so all those orbits had to be designed. So we had to do that. And then we had to decide, well, who gets to do which observations at what time on the orbit? So we do that. And then we allocate. And then it goes to another group that actually lays out these observations. So as the mission has gone on, you're always planning a year or two ahead. So yeah. like, you know, maybe a night in uh, 2000 and, oh, uh two or three, we were planning the first things we were going to do in 2004 and five. And in 2004 and five, we're looking at the new data, <laughs> but we're also planning 2006 and seven. And that got, went on through the whole mission. Yeah. Except now what's fun is we're done with the planning and we can just sit and watch all this stuff roll in. Oh, nice. And by the way, anybody who is, uh, who, who is interested can log on or just check the Cassini website, which is saturn.jpl.nasa.gov, and you can look at the raw images as they come down off the spacecraft in real time. Now, in just you know a couple of days ago, from when we're recording this, and it did the the dive in between the innermost ring and Saturn itself. Remember, people were up at like three a.m. Pacific time waiting because I, oh, I think it, was it lost. Like midnight. It was, yeah, it lost connection for right. a certain amount of time, and people were like, "Is it going to come back?" Yep. And yep. then it came back. Came back. There was a nice Twitter feed. It was a late night for you then. Uh, midnight. <laughs> it wasn't that late for me. <laughs> but uh, by midnight, uh, they they had the signal, and uh, there was a big room full of people down at JPL at the uh, Mon Carmel Auditorium. Everybody cheering and happy. I and bet. Then we can go to bed and say, "Okay, we're good <laughs> to go." And so you're talking about um, about like the orbits and planning it out. I'd imagine that that's doing a lot of calculations, a lot of math. But then even when you know where you want to go, is are you actually like telling the spacecraft to like like is it like jets? Is it just doing things to try to maneuver to kind of tweak it in a certain direction? Yeah, to Explain control that, the yeah. uh, right. So to point the spacecraft at all these different targets that we have. Um, they have what they call reaction wheels. They're like big flywheels, three big flywheels on okay. the side. Maybe each one is the size of a, maybe a pizza or something okay. like that. And they're spinning very fast, and they're heavy. So because, I don't know if you ever tried this trick with a spin, holding a spinning bicycle wheel yeah. by the axis and trying to turn direction, it, it's hard to do, it right, to because of the inertia back. of the spin. So what we can do uh, to change the direction of the spacecraft, we change the voltage on these spinning wheels and slow one of them down or speed the other one up, and the spacecraft as a whole reacts, yeah. back reacts, to, and it just turns. Kind of moves. Right, and it moves around. So we can point it in any direction we want. And because everything is bolted down to the spacecraft, we spend 15 hours looking around at this and that and recording all of our data on the recorders. And then we point, turn the whole spacecraft back to the Earth for nine hours and just sit there. (laughs) To get the information. To get the information down, right. Oh, wow. And so, and and how does that also play into how much energy or like you mentioned the plutonium but that was powering power so the most of the thing is run on electricity and the way the plutonium works is it's all forged into these little vitreous ceramic golf balls you know think of like a a piece of a sink you know it's a ceramic and it's just it's embedded in there and they get hot because the plutonium decays on an 84 year half-life 
so they just get hot. And uh, if you know what a thermocouple is, a thermocouple is just like a, a device with two different kinds of uh, compounds in it. And when it gets hot, it generates electricity. So we just have all these thermocouples on all these little hot golf balls, and it provides, I think, about 600 watts for the spacecraft. So yeah. over the over the time of the mission, the, the power level has been very gradually going mm-hmm. down. But that's not what's causing the end of the mission, that power will last for decades. Uh, we, we have an attitude control gas, it's uh, called hydrazine, and it just tweaks the, uh, the, uh, tra- the trajectory a little bit when we need to. And we've got the main engine that we burn every now and then to mm-hmm. change the trajectory a little bit more uh, if we need to, which we do. And those are the resources we're running out of. So at this point, we're pretty much out of. We're kind of running on fumes at this point uh, and those things. And that's why we're going to end the mission in September. Yeah, let's talk about that final swan song. Or even for right. you, like, are, are you hoping for some really cool data from, from going through these close orbits, like like near that inner ring, looking for some cool information, I'd imagine. The, uh, yeah, we, the, actually, we've had 22 very close orbits already. Okay. The, what we call the grand finale, the first half of it, we, we went grazing right by the very outer edge of the A-ring that I was telling you about, yeah. like just inside the A-ring and the F-ring. We got some totally cool and brand new stuff in those 22 orbits. And then what we just did was we fired a burn and we moved that crossing point, as you said, between the ring, the innermost ring called the D-ring, and the planet. And now we have 22 more of those. So okay. now we can do a whole another kind of unique science. Uh, for instance, um, we're so close to the planet now and the rings that the mass of the rings and the small irregularities in the Mm -hmm. mass distribution inside the planet affect the orbit of the spacecraft. And we can detect that when we track it. We can measure the orbit of the spacecraft to within sometimes centimeters, uh, you know, and, and by these very, very small perturbations to the orbit, we can measure the mass of the rings, and we can measure the internal distribution of the mass inside the planet. It's never been done before. Uh, and it's a very critical uh, measurement uh, to make. So we're going to do that, and I can tell you more about that. We're also, mm-hmm. for the first time, going to take some active radar, uh, you know, bouncing radar actually off of the rings and doing a radial uh, scan or profile with a resolution that's comparable to our best images. But now oh. this is actual radar bouncing off the ring. So it might it's going to tell us all kinds of different things, again, that we've never, ever seen before. The other thing that's totally new is because we're actually crossing through the rings and all this dust that we've been worried about, the dust experiment can determine the composition of the ring material. Right. Okay. Well, we know it's mostly water ice. Yeah. But it's the rings are distinctly red, so we know it's not all water ice. And what is that red stuff is a mm-hmm. very big question that's going to tell us how the rings were formed and maybe when the rings were formed. So there's two different theories. One is that it's like good old-fashioned rust, like Mars is red, uh, and the other is that it's a kind of an organic material, like carrots or tomatoes, watermelon okay. are also red by organic molecules. So we should be able to tell the difference between those two things as the uh, this dust yeah. analyzer crashes through the dust. Yeah, and then and then the very end of this of the of the end of the mission, the end of Cassini is right. it actually is going to burn up right. into Saturn. So right. so somebody may ask, 
why are you why crash it in instead of just letting it float off and try to milk it a little bit more? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and it was decided early on because remember I, I mentioned that Titan is uh, of interest from the standpoint of exobiology, the formation yeah. of life. Now Enceladus also is because of its liquid yeah, ocean. Two hot targets right out there two that we want targets. to look at. That's right. So we don't want to contaminate them with Earth microbes. And <laughs> Cassini was never really sterilized. The probe was sterilized. The probe mm-hmm. did go down on a parachute to the atmosphere of Titan, but it was properly sterilized. Spacecraft was not sterilized. Okay. So so we have to actually dispose uh, of the spacecraft with prejudice, as they say, uh, and that's uh, by burying it in the planet. Yeah, I'd imagine that'd be the worst case scenario. You, you send a future mission rover or a probe or something that gets out there and we discover bacterial life Oh, that we already brought there. Yeah. That we brought there ourselves. Yeah, that's not going to be a fun time. Right, right, yeah. So, for folks who have any questions for Jeff, uh, we are at NASA Ames. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So, if anybody has questions, they can start chiming those in to us and we'll, we'll get back to you and bring it back together. So, but thanks for coming on over. My pleasure.